1: but your individual ability as a hunter, as a mentor to say, hey, I know you picked up honey last year. Uh, You want to go again. How can I help you be better at it? You can directly impact that person. Since
0: 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is your host, Erin Kindle. I'm excited about my guest today. She's a friend of a lot of the work we do, including Artemis. Uh, you may have heard her name. Her name is Sam Petter, and she's the Director of Operations at the Council to Advance the Hunting and Shooting Sports. How are you doing today, Sam?
1: Doing great. Excited to be here.
0: Thanks for joining. Uh, first, we're going to tell you a little bit about Sam, and then we're going to jump into a bunch of fun subjects uh, and and how she's seeing things in the hunting and shooting sports and R3 work, and there's just a lot to cover here, and I'm excited about it. Uh, but first, Sam has, is grew up in Pennsylvania has been there her whole life she started in her conservation career at the age of 16 for the Pennsylvania Game Commission so she's she's a veteran although being a young person uh, she spent some time with the National Shooting Sports Foundation and she's also on the Artemis leadership team uh, for those of you who don't know Artemis you must have been living under a rock at this point because Artemis has taken the world by storm uh, it's our sportswomen's initiative at NWF here and She speaks with Marsha Brownlee uh, quite often and has been an instrumental leader in that program. So we're happy to have her. Uh, Sam, just we always kick this off telling telling our folks what we've been doing outside lately. So I'll I'll let you do the honors and tell me what you've been up to out in the woods.
1: So my trademark story for the time being is taking my dog and acting as a guide for my little brother to go pheasant hunting. Um, If people know me and their friends, they know I got a puppy in November, 2019. And I've worked with him diligently to train him. And uh, we went to a reserve. I'll explain details later, but he and I guided for my little brother for a successful bag limit. And it was the epitome of proud parent. Even though I don't have kids, I I felt that emotion as well as just astoundment because he did stuff that I didn't train him to do, but also I'm going to take credit for because I mean, he's my dog. So of course, so I was really that was my highlight of let's say the winter hunting season. That's what I've been up to.
0: Great, uh, you know I've been outside some. I haven't been doing anything too sporting lately. I keep, I keep hoping to get on the river and do some fishing pretty soon here. But mostly just getting outside, hiking around a little. You know, keeping from being stir crazy, and and already planning for next year. Yesterday I put in for my my boy for an elk tag in Wyoming. He is so into hunting right now that uh. He wants to hunt every possible critter and, and, and in every possible place. And Wyoming's the neighbor here to Colorado. So we put in yesterday for an elk tag for him in Wyoming. Hope we get that. And uh, he's he's so into it lately that he's been going out. He's he's right now, school is, is closed down, so he's on Zoom. So he's been going out early in the morning before school starts and just wandering around trying to find mule deer, looking, tracking them, trying to get them in the binos, the stuff. So I'm, I'm trying to just keep the fire lit because I'm happy about about that and he's just so enthusiastic so living a little vicariously through it through a new young hunter
1: that's awesome you know my dad and i we had our sights on a trip to montana as a family we had to delay because of covid and it's been brought up five times over the weekend what are we doing how are we going to go we should plan this so i totally understand it the planning (laughs) mode has commenced unofficially but officially so (laughs)
0: Good. Well, let's jump into some of these topics, Sam. I think our listeners are going to be just thrilled to hear some of the stuff that you have to say. We, we were lucky enough to have Sam on in our uh, NWF sporting summit that we held, you know, just before Christmas and Sam gave a great presentation. I thought, man, more people need to hear this. And so we have, we have her here today and we're lucky. And let's just start with the big, broad question. We hear hunting, shooting and conservation and, and people go, how exactly are those connected? and some know and some don't and, and there's a lot more you know layers to that web I think than people understand. so just just give us the big broad unpacking of that concept if you would.
1: I would So it's always fun to me to figure out how to convey this to people because if you're not a hunter um, you might not understand it. you might not have been born up and told we pay for conservation uh, and the narratives change too with target shooters, right? So fundamentally, um, when I buy a shotgun, when I buy ammo, there is an excise tax I am paying that goes to a federal pot and it's allocated to state fish and wildlife agencies to do on-the-ground management of wildlife for for our use, but also for just the benefit of nature. That is the basic, simple statement. But whoever buys that ammo or buys that shotgun could be a hunter or a target shooter. So as we've seen target shooting numbers go up and we see hunter numbers changing as well too, the people who can say who pays for conservation is, is evolving as well. And so fundamentally, there's an economic tie through that um, user pay, user benefit system. We buy hunting licenses, which is another tax or fee, I guess I should say fee we pay to pursue a resource. But on top of it, you know, conservation is tied to hunters too because of the connection we have with nature and with wildlife, right? As a hunter, we're physically in the environment. So we value it, um, that experience of being a part of it. So we're also the volunteers. We're also the teachers for the next generation of sportsmen and women. And we're also the yeah. voices oftentimes. And we can go into lots of conversations of how that's changing in our current environment. But those are kind of the fundamental things of why hunting and target shooting now in conservation are all connected.
0: That's a great answer. Tell us a little bit for, for folks who don't know, there's this word, we or this acronym, I guess it is when there's numbers. I, I don't know if it counts as an acronym exactly, but R3, we all throw it around. We say it, it's one of the kind of insider words or, or acronyms we use, but unpack that a little and tell folks exactly what that means. And, and, you know, some of the work you're doing to help that work.
1: For sure. So R3 officially stands for recruitment, retention, and reactivation. Um, If a hunter is on the landscape and a target shooter, and let's say angler and boater too, because they're all tied into that participation experience and conservation, numbers are changing. And I say changing with asterisks because pre-2020, hunting numbers were down. Target shooter numbers were going up, but now with COVID, we are in a new level of just participation. So we're just going to say that hunter, target shooter, angling, and boating numbers are changing, and that has forced the conservation industry, our nonprofits like DU, NWF, other other partners, our state fish and wildlife agencies, our federal agencies, and then our industry partners who also pay part of that excise tax that I talked about earlier on. Um, our, our whole world of participant numbers is dependent upon people going outdoors, and that funding equation as well as the support for wildlife. So with changing numbers, it's forcing our industry to evolve how we interact with customers. And at some point, the connection was made that like, the number of people on the landscape pursuing an activity can be influenced. It could be influenced by the regulations we set as an agency, right? If we say, let's say, no Sunday hunting, well, that's less people that have time right now to get outdoors. So we can fix We'll have that. to get into that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's marketing.
0: Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there's there's a lot of things we can do. We're not helpless in this like hunter recruitment, retention, reactivation, and other outdoor recreation uh, R3 efforts. So it's been this growing movement to empower the conservation partners to do something about it and address the changing numbers. It also taps into diversity and inclusion, getting more women outdoors, getting um, more minorities outdoors. That's in essence what R3 refers to. It's not It's not the science, which the science of wildlife management is really important but this is the science of people and the people who participate in these activities and also can can serve and volunteer with our organizations
0: yeah the social science if you will For sure. uh let's let's unpack that a little bit more and I'll and I'll prompt you by saying what we didn't say is that those dollars often sometimes lead to up to 50 60 70% of a state game agency's budget um, so anybody who cares about wildlife, I should say fish, game, wildlife agencies, for instance, Colorado's, Colorado parks and wildlife, anybody who cares about wildlife is benefiting from these dollars. And, and, you know, that I think is the thing that people don't quite understand and, and talk about how that mechanism works a little bit. How does, for instance, Pennsylvania fishing game, how do they get that money? And what's, what does that do?
1: So the economic side of it ties the industry, the sportsmen, and the state and federal agencies together because it's a translation of funding, right? You mentioned 60 to 70% of agency budgets can come from, let's say, hunting licenses or the excise tax. So the excise tax is the money paid when someone buys a gun, and it's paid from the manufacturer's checkbook, but they collect that back from the user. So that money is generated every time something's sold. And that's the idea of the excise tax. It's collected up and then your state fish and wildlife agencies write grants. Um, They try to figure out the priorities on the landscape. Do we need more deer? Do we need to manage CWD? Do we need to buy more lands and burn more lands for better habitat management? They have the science to understand what they need to do. And then through a grant-making entity, the federal entity, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they write grants and that money is allocated to them to do the -the on-the-ground management. So that cycle of the hunter gets more access, the hunter gets uh, more opportunity to pursue game in different habitat types. They're also paying for a portion of that, which is why hunters say they pay for conservation.
0: Yeah, and then further, you have things like habitat stamps and duck Mm -hmm. stamps and all these other, you know, they're not excise tax. They're, I don't know how you would call those, just conservation programs that hunters and anglers are required to. To buy into that that do a lot for the same types of things
1: yeah license fees permit fees access fees they're all funding sources for conservation
0: and what are we talking about sam tell us some of the numbers i mean the, the numbers are incredible how much money we're talking here it's not just a few bucks
1: no it's millions it, um, upwards of 80 some million dollars generated annually to do conservation on the ground so that's just pr it's not dj2 so those numbers It's a conservation machine is the word that people have used. It's the machine that keeps conservation going. And it employs thousands of people to do the work as well too. So that's something not to be lost.
0: And we're throwing around a couple other acronyms here that I want to make sure we, we don't use without explaining them out. You've heard Sam say PR and DJ. She's speaking of Pittman Robertson Act. These both that act was passed back in 1939, seven. I think. Some, 7, right in yep. there. Uh, and that that was what established this excise tax uh, for for hunting and shooting sports, ammunition and guns. And then Dingle Johnson came along a little later and it is also known sometimes as the Sport Fish Restoration Act. Mm-hmm. And tell do you know much about that one? Do you have do live in that world as well?
1: Um, by connection because what's good for anglers is usually good for hunters so dj is dingle johnson 1953 ish i can look up the date but it's the um funding on the side of the you know water resources on the angler access on the boating access boat ramps items like that um, that come from the dj side of things
0: yeah that's so basically hunters anglers sportsmen and women are out there dumping their dollars all over the landscape, helping with habitat, fish and wildlife. Um, it's really one of the reasons for those who don't understand and know this, that they say they fund conservation and that they, in fact, do fund conservation. Um, so it's a cool mechanism uh, that that Sam obviously knows a ton about that we're all proud of. Um, it's one of the great ways we, we give back just by doing what we love. Um, so let's talk a little bit more, Sam, uh, particularly about 2020 it's an anomaly in about 500 different ways one big gigantic one that's been steamrolling us unfortunately uh, all of us in the world frankly but what did that mean and and you know what is it what are, what's different and important about 2020 with respect to to getting outside and hunting and shooting sports
1: i think after thinking about this a long time the best thing that covid brought conservation was time it made the world stop and if you look at a lot of the research about why people stop hunting, why they stop angling, why they stop being outside, it's because of time. Um, a good friend has a quote that says, you can't add a 25th hour to the day. But what COVID did was took away our commute time, right? There's bunches of articles about, with the extra two hours saved for my commute, I'm accomplishing this. It gave us time and also the decision on how to make use our time. And Americans resoundingly said, I'm going outside. They connected because of um, mental health aspects of it, just to decompress and get away from whatever Zoom chaos they're in. But other examples, too, is they were in the same place for a while. I mean, that's my case. I travel for work 50% of the time, usually. And I spent more days of field just because I happened to be in the same place and I could pursue game near an access point I had. So by COVID um, hitting us, I know a lot of people have suffered and and dealt with a lot of different um, blows because of COVID. One thing that it did deliver was that time, and Americans translated that to time outdoors. And so that's a fundamental thing we're trying to understand more. We know that NSSF uh, reported increases of license sales up to 12% in some states. Now that um, increase wasn't felt across the country. You know, non-resident, if a state shut off travel, non-resident licenses took a dive and we're trying to understand that, but generally speaking, participation's up and we know on angling especially. And so fundamentally what that did for the work I do and like our partners and Marsha's work with Artemis, right? It changed our focus a little bit, not from more and more people outdoors in recruitment, but more to retention. And how do we keep this blossoming 12% growth, let's say, on the hunting side? How do we keep it? Because we can't create new hours once COVID passes. But there's something we can do to remind them that when times got tough, you went outside, you hunted, you angled, or you fished. You did something outdoors, and you want to remember that. So we're now talking about ways, can we get ahead of it and say, Let's keep them active. Let's keep them persistent as outdoor participants. And what we know, every five years, there's a national survey done. We can measure participation in the outdoors in a a few different ways. But um, the National Survey of Hunting, Fishing, and Wildlife-Associated Recreation is a five-year survey done. The last one was 2016. And in that survey, it said 11.7 million people hunt. Well, the next survey is gonna be done in 2022. And that number could be 11.7 million again, or it could be 20 million. The actions we take right now can keep the numbers up and we could have great numbers in 2022, but we have to kind of decide to take that proactive position and retain people right now. So that's really where our community is focusing and saying, why'd you go outdoors? Let's talk about it. Remember that? How can we help you stay active? And that's where we're all, all our mindsets are at.
0: Sure. And I mean, I think For those of us who live and breathe in this world and care so much about conservation and, and, you know, protecting these landscapes, the more people who are out there who know them, who love them, who fish them, who hunt them, bike, hike, all these things, the more advocates we have, the more people out there that are saying, hey, this place is special to me and I want to see it, you know, conserved. And then, you know, we've seen that actually. Uh, We've seen more participation in conservation campaigns too. Uh, as people have you know maybe woken up again to the special spot that they had forgotten about for a few years. Um, so that's a great trend. Uh, what about how about overall? what have the trends look like for for many years? And then you know you just talked a little bit about 2020, but how anomalous was it? And you know, who are the people hunting and fishing? you know, what have the trends been over the years and what's been you know been being done to try and uh, keep things going?
1: For sure. So, 1980s was our high point as far as license sale go on the hunting side. Um, you know, we've done a lot of research into that, but that was our high water mark as far as people outdoors. So, if someone's listening and they're a hunter, think about what you were doing in the 1980s. If you were at a hunting camp, and for me, it translates to there were probably 13 people. At, we're told stories that people were sleeping on the, the kitchen table because there was no beds because it was so popular back then. Okay, so that was a high water mark since that point participation has been going down and we've done a lot of research into why we know you know the social science human dimension side of it why they cease um it's time it's access it, it's a lot of things social friends to go with so that's been some of the motivations of why people have stopped hunting or lapsed is a word we use too. but then on the other side of it um, the type of people going hunting. You know, we we still have our hardcore hunters, but we're starting to better understand that something called churn happens. And we're getting some of our focus groups and our social science surveys to tell us like that the hardcore hunter who goes year in and year out isn't actually our standard customer. He's actually an anomaly in and of himself, right? If you go every year, huh. you buy a license every year, you're not the norm. Huh. <laughs> so it's that's called
0: churn, you said? Like yeah, C-H- churn
1: okay like i'm churning better you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> to help you out so an average churn rate would be like 35 percent in a state for a licensed sales hmm. and that's um one in five one in four people you know are, are not buying the next year and we, we're figuring that out so our science of figuring out why license sales are going down and participation as a result is going down too is getting better and so to connect it back to 2020 um For the last five years i've worked for this organization as a council we've worked on that term r3 For the last five years the thing i've been talking about is license sales are down but we can do something about it this is the first time in five years i could say license sales aren't down but we got to figure out why and how to keep them like that's why this is anomaly because it's a a lovely delivery of an opportunity and so as far as like you know types of hunters as uh, demographics go We know that the women market, and this is why Artemis is so great, the women's market is increasing as part of a representative portion of the hunters that go out too. It went from 10% to 11%. So I'm excited to see their numbers at a national level again because maybe we're at 15% now. I don't know. I'm I'm looking forward to figuring that out. And why that's important, like you said, is because the people who are outdoors experiencing these opportunities also speak up for it. And so we know that, you know, about More than 90%, the actual number I can look up, but more than 90% of hunters right now are Caucasian and and male. And so as America diversifies into the coming, let's say, five decades, we know, we need to get more people valuing and connecting to wildlife and hunting and conservation more too. And by the numbers, we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of opportunity too, because right now COVID said, hey, this is something that you can responsibly recreate by going fishing, going hunting, taking your hunter ed course online. There's a lot of things connected to that. So it, it not only um, delivered us higher numbers by perhaps reactivating some of our former license buyers, it also made it more approachable, I think, the activities of hunting and angling to a broader audience. And that's another reason to capitalize on it right now.
0: Yeah, those are all great points. And, and one thing you talked about there is, you know, how do we invite new people and how do we become? and I mean, I, it's weird to me too, because I, you know, I think about all the folks that I know that are hunters and anglers and everybody that I know kind of likes bringing somebody new, you know, maybe not if you're going on that hardcore trip where you're really trying to, you know, definitely hike over the top of a mountain and get into elk or whatever. But, you know, for the most part, people enjoy getting new people engaged and, and teaching and showing them the way. And it's, it's, there's a community about it. And I think being inclusive and inviting is something that, you know, culturally hunters and anglers haven't maybe been as good at, but are getting better at. And then, you know, the stuff that you do is pretty, you know, almost formal. We'll say, I'll do it in air quotes because, you know, there's all kinds of different ways. There's no formal definition of what that is, but it's, it's, it has science to it. It has professionals working on it on a regular basis. Um, Whereas, you know, just average Joe or Jane out there I feel like they're pretty inclusive in general and maybe it just has to be introduced. That's one, something maybe you can unpack a little bit for me is how you approach or build programs or just invite people. You know, what is it that we can do to just be a huge inviting community and culture?
1: For sure. I'll start with a personal experience. When I was 17 and 18, I was one of the only chicks I knew that hunted. And for me, I had to learn not only how to tell people why I did it, but also how to get more people outdoors. So I, I started doing some programs because in my mind, it was like, they just need a place to go. They just need an invitation to the range and an established program, right? And that, that mentality wasn't new to the people who have taught, taught me how to hunt or target shoot either. It's just the target audience maybe was a different consideration than perhaps in the past. So that idea of, you know, who do you ask to go with you? why you ask to go with you ask them to go with you different aspects is all kind of conversations we're having right now there's a lot of work being done in the topic of mentoring and even the word itself mentoring is bringing up some connotations to some people for me a mentor is like a lifelong teacher right my dad's my mentor in my life and my hunting career too but to some other people a mentor is somebody you sign up with at work and they teach you how to do your job better and so when you say you have a hunting mentoring program, new audiences <laughs> are kind of like, I don't yeah, know about don't this. Know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So as we look at it, we're starting to say, okay, what type of mentor do people want to learn from? And then the other thing about um, participation is really the motivations of hunters. Why Why do people go outdoors? So uh, a lot of hunters I know, and I don't want to say like the rule of thumb, but a lot of hunters I know eat what they hunt, Right kind of a common thing that I have venison as part of my diet. I eat pheasant, and I'm probably a little bit snobbish to say that pheasant is better than chicken too. <laughs> so when it comes down to it, though, uh, many people, you know, that mentor relationship and that chance to taste it even, it hasn't been on the radar. And so let's go back to the numbers a second. If the ra- the number of people who actively hunt is going down since the 1980s, that means the pool of mentors out there for other people to learn from is actively going down too, right? Yeah. So if you don't have any teachers, who can be their disciples or who can be their pupils, right? Yeah. So that aspect of it is something to consider too. So there's been a big push for like to learn how to hunt for your food. You know, some guys down in Georgia and sure. Kentucky turned up to some farmer's markets with some beer and said, check it out, this is venison. But that was that first experience for a lot of those let's say new participants, to taste venison for the first time. So I think it's Hank Forrester that talks about venison diplomacy, you know, and sharing what people harvest with others who haven't been on the experience but get to taste it. Like all of those are are ideas that are reshaping how we think about mentoring, reshaping how we pass on this culture, this tradition to other people. So traditionally, you know, I learned how to hunt from my dad. I was the first girl on hunting camp, but I learned how to hunt from my dad and my uncles. It's still a family tradition we do today. What we're learning is that your hunting camp can include other people too. It's just a matter of figuring out the right people to invite.
0: Yeah, I've heard some interesting things about people sharing wild food, particularly that you know, hunted or even gathered food is much more likely to be shared, you know, obviously than something you bought from the grocery store. Um, and which I think is cool and encouraging, right? It's uh it's like you're you're almost almost a pride in it, right? I, I, I harvested this animal. I brought it home. I took care of it. And now I want to cook it for you or share it with you and, and kind of introduce you. And I, it would follow with my experience, right? A lot of people try to give you meat or share meat. Um, so that, I, I love that part. I think it's, the food part is really attractive, right? New recipes, people like Steve Ranella, all these different people that are now showing you that it doesn't have to be just a, you know, I remember growing up getting some rough, game meat right like somebody just like threw it on a grill and didn't didn't take care of it didn't season it that good and and just going man if this is what this is i'm not sure but since then boy there is some of the best food you'll ever eat uh is is wild harvested animals and and you know all kinds of things so really happy to hear those are the trends glad people are getting into it that way i know it's a cool way people are starting to get into it in a lot of different places um Talk a little bit about access too, Sam. I know that's one of the things, you know, hunters constantly cite as, you know, why they leave or, or you know, why they can't get their kids into it or so on. Um, what, what do you see in there and what, what can we be looking at to try and help that one?
1: Yeah, access, in my opinion, is being rewritten, the definitions of it. So if we go to Webster and say access to opportunity, access to land, how we define it as an industry is being rewritten. And I say that because partners at TRCP and Onyx have done a lot with the access work to identify acreage that's, quote unquote, landlocked, right? Hunters can't get on it, but it's called federal public land. So that's an area of access that we're restricted from. There's the other side of the definition of access where there's land available, like in your backyard, but you don't have the information to figure out how to get there. Or you didn't know that physically that land was there. You didn't have the app that said hunting open here. Come on and check it out, right? So the term of access is generally, that's how it's being redefined. But really, it just means getting people on the landscape to get to physical ground to go hunting, right? That's how I want to talk about it here. So the amount of land open to access is changing. We have other farm bill programs and stuff trying to help open up land too with VPA HIP. But even just how we classify land, you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has done a great um, effort to help with, with that definition too and open up access on federal properties, the, the refuges as well too. So people site access is one of the reasons why they stopped participating. And I, I wholly believe that they've lost access to the land that they've hunted for years and years. But the other side of it is, is that, perhaps the way we communicate it from the state fish and wildlife agency or perhaps the way we document on an app is also changing too
0: yeah that's interesting and then you dropped a couple more acronyms on us there for folks who, who don't know i always try to to back people up and have them have them explain those out in case people are like what in the heck is that
1: so you prcp said,
0: no, well that one, I guess okay. that one too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I was like, like, wait, what am I, I say? Yeah. <laughs> okay,
1: so voluntary VIPA HIP is Voluntary Public Access Program. Um, TRCP is Theodore Roosevelt Partner Conservation Partnership. Onex is a company or an industry company. And yeah. I think that's it.
0: So let's talk about that voluntary program that's authorized through a few different things. Can you can you tell folks a little bit about that and why some of the legislation we see is so important with that?
1: Sure. Um, I won't claim to be an expert on the policy side of it by any regard, but I do know that the sources of funding to get hunters access to either private land or federal land, getting rights of access on there, are varied. You have the farm bill legislation. You have other um, sources of legislation, too, that put pots of monies out there to increase access and oftentimes it's connected to habitat management so on the pheasant side you have some um, crp land conservation reserve program land uh, and other areas that has a higher value if it's open to the public but there is there's many efforts that have been done to increase hunters access on land so that they can continue to participate because we know that that's been a direct correlation between ability to go and knowing where to go
0: yeah, I was kind of aiming at the farm bill when I said that because the farm bill does so much with agricultural lands, getting access to agricultural lands, which, you know, folks across the Midwest and many other places uh, like Iowa or Illinois that are almost all private land, right? Like if they didn't have some of those programs, that would be a huge burden uh, to try and find some place that they could go. And maybe if they did find some place, it would be incredibly crowded. So those are just so key. And they, they also help, farmers and and ranchers and other people giving them incentives uh to allow folks on their land so um,
1: pa in pennsylvania as well too so here um you know i think it's like 60 some percent of our land is actually private in pennsylvania so the rate of which hunters go to public land pa pennsylvania acronyms um us from pa here have like 1.5 million acres, a little bit more in state game lands, bought with license dollars or with or excise tax dollars. But on top of it, we have another some odd acres opened to public access on private land. Sources of funding of the VPA, HIP, I talked about um, in the trying to find those on the landscape. We're we're working on that. The agencies working at, on that. The nonprofits and the landscapes working on that because you know a lot of our state land, our state owned land, is in the north. And what we learned is that concentrations of hunters are in their urban areas now. That's another trend we're seeing. So hunters used to be able to take say two hours to drive to hunting camp on the weekend. Now, you we know, their preference is to go hunting within 30 minutes of their abode or their their homestead or their house. And so getting them <laughs> access where they want to go, I know, right. Where I'm are going... you
0: out there in Pennsylvania? It must be yeah. backwoods.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. But, um, uh, Getting them access where they actually want to go or have the time to go, another time element has been critical too. So, all of this factors into just making the process of going hunting easier. Less decision making, less work, so people can just get in the woods and recreate. That's the whole goal.
0: Yeah, nice. Well, let's talk. I'm going to try to thread a needle here because, you know, with every, if every, it seems like every issue now is kind of, just dichotomize it's like you're this way or you're that and you're black and it's white and it's you're republican or you're down. all these things that that i don't prefer to do myself i really don't like it but you know uh thinking about how we're getting folks introduced to the hunting and shooting sports right it's like gun owners against non-gun owners and hunters against non-hunters you know how how can we as a community and people who care about these things help normalize it And, you know, if you will, I'm I'm normalizing, air quotes, because to you and I, it's very normal. Uh, But how do we help folks understand it's not all about, you know, crazy gun people or, you know, crazy hunters that are, you know, out in the woods doing crazy stuff. I think one of the things that I've really loved, and Artemis particularly has been amazing at this, so many regular folks, you know. Trying to make a living, moms, people, people out there just working regular jobs, love just getting out in the woods, taking their families, cooking the, cooking the wild game, and and that's a beautiful kind of a byproduct, or maybe it's a direct product, but of Artemis specifically, is that it it helps people see like that's me, right? That's not it's not somebody else out there. That's me. Uh, that looks like me, feels like me. So talk about talk about that. How we can normalize some of this stuff and and. Maybe some what not to do examples too. Some some of the things you've seen that people are doing that aren't the way you should do it.
1: So I like to get comfortable in that space in between groups, and uh, I thought a lot about this because good yeah you hear uh, my favorite term to you know ask people not to use let's say is they they think this they think that I'm like what who is they we define they first so <laughs> let's let's delete that from a vocab if we do anything. But um, some tips I've picked up just in my own experience, because I teach for Conservation Leaders for Tomorrow and other programs I've been involved in and stuff. And, you know, a female hunter who's, I'm 32 now, I've dealt with my um, scenarios of assumptions. Like I go to a gun store and people still assume that I don't know the difference between a pistol and a shotgun. That's just the way it is with my demographic right now. Not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that that's happened, right? So if something people can do is to delete assumptions, if you can try, it's really hard. But don't assume you know everything just by looking at people. You might find that the female hunter you encounter on the landscape is actually one of the most accomplished, and she'll be able to help you pack it out and quarter it out or do whatever you need to do. So if you can delete assumptions, that's the best first way to disarm any conversation. Another aspect is to listen more than talk. I think that's any kind of thing. But I think one of the things that connects all hunters together is the experience they have and also the passion they develop around the experience. And if you listen long enough, I think everyone can hear any hunting story and find that passion of somebody. So if you give a person long enough to tell you a hunting story, you'll see that you have more common ground than you probably assumed. <laughs> you will be able to build a relationship from there. And then, and finally, I would say as much as people are comfortable to try to engage in conversations that you know might be different than what you're used to. And what I mean by that is, say uh, you live in, I'm going to use a cane, Pennsylvania, and your population there isn't that high. And you're, everyone you know goes to Joe's after the big hunt. You drive around with your buck in the back of your, your pickup bed, and you know everyone knows who, who you harv- what you harvested. Um, maybe take some time to volunteer to do an education program in an urban setting and get to know the type of people who want to learn to hunt, because there's a dynamic there that you'll probably be pleasantly surprised your assumptions made about people who didn't do it before are just because they haven't had that experience or opportunity. So just like someone would want to pass on hunting to their kin, their child, their friend, whomever, there's many other people that want that same opportunity. They just haven't had it. And so those are the tips I've picked up and try to, you know, talk with my family about my friends to kind of just help increase the conversation around why we do what we do and also get more people outdoors.
0: That's good. Can I put you on the spot? Do you have a cool story that kind of illuminates where, either you know, you made an assumption because we all do, and I'm not putting you on the spot because you're you're an assumer and we're not because we all do it. But uh, you know, do you have any kind of a story that really was like it was a surprise, or somebody was, you know, jumping up and 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 wanting to be in the hunting space that you didn't think, or you know, and if you don't, it's fine too because I <laughs> this yeah. is off the cup, just asking. But if you do, that'd be great.
1: I do. Uh, I guess the assumption comes from personal experience too. Um, one person I chose to mentor, I actually over-accommodated. and that's quite possible. Um, you're not their mother. <laughs> you're 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 a friend teaching them some skills. so I made the error of over accommodating. And you know I won't go into too much detail, but I learned from assuming that they knew nothing, it wasn't that they knew nothing. They just didn't know the specific activity of like rifle deer hunting. They've been upland hunting. They've been other hunting styles, but I'd assume they knew nothing. So I was over accommodating and um, under underestimated their capability of where they were on the learning spectrum. And I learned quickly from that experience. And thankfully, that gentleman uh, really helped me to learn in my experience as well, too.
0: That's good. So. What are we looking at for, you know, if you're, if you have to say, you know, what, what are we looking at for the future as far as what we should be doing, what kind of trends we're going to expect to continue or which ones we think are going to change, you know, what's the outlook right now?
1: So I don't want to get too forecasting, but I can't hit it home enough that right now we control our destiny. Whatever Star Wars or Star Trek or whatever theory you want to throw out there, we control our destiny right now. And research from the previous human dimensions research we've seen tells us that, you know, new hunters want to go hunting again. In fact, like one in or one in 4 and 5 say they will go hunting again. They will, they plan to, they want to. What we find when we look at license sales after that next year is that actually only one in five went. So we go from 80% wanting to to 20% actually going.
0: Hmm. So
1: right now COVID, COVID's still here, but COVID hasn't shut down hunting. We you know that COVID hasn't shut down angling. We have opportunities to get outdoors. And so I already think we'll still stay high into 2022 numbers, but we could, we could do more. We don't actually know how high we can go and your ability as an individual, not just a state agency or a nonprofit, but your individual ability as a hunter as a mentor to say hey i, I know you picked up hunting last year uh you want to go again how can i help you be better at it you can directly impact that person and so uh, it's just an important thing to consider right now
0: so what happens to those three out of five people
1: <laughs> my favorite definition is life <laughs> there's i remember being in a focus group with our human dimension specialists in pennsylvania And we were surveying some uh, high school kids. And we said, why do you stop hunting? There's like this big cliff from like age 16 to 20. And you start to boil it down. and You know, some of them said like kids or cars, uh, first jobs, boyfriends, girlfriends, you know, different aspects. But it's just life happens. The assumption that we're going to have the same amount of time after COVID passes isn't there. We know that that life's going to pick back up again. So Right now, because COVID's still here, we can say, you know what, you liked it so much. Here's a chance to keep it as an integral part of your lifestyle. This isn't just something you do. This is who you can be. You can provide food. You can do all this stuff. So that that's that's what we're up against. Is once life picks back up, how do we make honey a priority for them still?
0: So yeah, it seems to me it's kind of the big question is how do we make it a passion? Right, and I love that one, being a conservationist and, and working in a place where we're trying to achieve conservation goals because the people who often help the most are very passionate. They're passionate about being hunters or being hikers or being out there and bird watchers, all, all those different things. So how do we make them passionate or help them be passionate? Make them is too strong a word. They got to do it themselves, obviously. But any insight into that, What what is it that leads to that passion? I mean, those of us who, are passionate about sometimes it's hard to see the forest through the trees there. Like we just yeah. love it so much. What well, like I can't imagine why you wouldn't. But but <laughs> do you have any insight in that?
1: I do. It's um I look at it as the fact that when someone says are you going hunting like in the middle of October, I'm like, yeah. They're like, what are you going for? I'm like, I'm not sure. I got so many options. I got to figure it out. Right. That's that's what you want to pass on, right? in a term in a social science world that they use is avidity. How avid of a hunter are they? Which we can equate to passion right now. In, in a little bit, I'll put an asterisk next to that, but avidity. Um, we yeah. know there's something out there called the outdoor recreation adoption model. So when you teach somebody a new skill set, uh, especially if it's not common to like their frame of reference, their personal experience. So sometimes firearms, eating what you hunt, getting an animal, harvesting an animal, those are all pretty um, heavy experiences someone can have, right? So We know that in this spectrum, as people are going through this and in learning all these different skills, there's certain kind of, let's say, boxes that they're going to go through of feelings and emotions and of skill development, too. So what our goal is to do is to keep them from the trial stage where they've tried it a couple of times, that they just continue with support and then without support. How we look at that in license sales is if they buy two years and then they buy the next year and the next year, we know we have them hooked. How you can influence that from a mentor perspective is like, you taught them how to deer hunt, fantastic. Now teach them how to squirrel hunt, teach them how to small game hunt, teach them how to pheasant hunt, teach them how to western hunt if you want to. Whatever you can do, waterfowl, huge waterfowl fan, that's like cracked for some people, so highly recommend that too. Whatever you can do to help expose them to other hunting opportunities will help them to become more avid hunters too.
0: Awesome. When you say Western hunt, you mean hunting out westers or is there something I'm missing there.
1: Yeah. Our Eastern folks um, understand what I'm saying. We're hosting a, one of the nonprofits okay. I volunteer for is hosting a Western hum, hunting summit. So um, I think what they call it is aspirational hunting. The Easterners move to the West to trek your mountains. Um, that's aspirational for us. Uh, that's why my family is coming West. So uh, okay. Western hunting is different than whitetail hunting in the East.
0: Man, if that meant some sort of thing that I wasn't aware of, I would have been a little taken aback. But I'm glad. I'm glad. Not negative. That <laughs> Good. Let's
1: call it aspirational goal setting, kind of stuff like that. Opportunity, all that different stuff. It's why people put in for lotteries, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, what about you know what if some Jane Hunter or Joe Hunter is out there tomorrow and they're like, man, what what should I be doing that that will help get people into this and keep them into this and kind of keep this tradition alive that, you know, I like to say hunting. One of the reasons I love it is there's something about it that just kind of connects you to every human that's ever walked the earth. I mean, obviously there's some folks nowadays that don't want to hunt or won't, but you know, throughout all of human history and human evolution, people have been hunters and I, and I, there's something about it sometimes that it just like you almost feel that. And so I feel like it's, I want people to be able to have that. Um, and I feel like it's a cool thing when that kind of light bulb clicks. So, so what, what could people do? Average, average person, what should they be doing to help move this needle?
1: Three things. One, um, tell people why you do it. Not just to kill stuff. Tell them why you do it, how you hunt it, how you harvest it, your time outdoors, what you ate, what you made, the venison diplomacy. Narrate your experience beyond beyond just the kill, and that's a very very dark term. But you know, seriously, there's more to it. We pull the trigger once on many of our seasons, right? There's so much more to it. We're not just there to pull the triggers. So talk about why you do it beyond just the harvest. Second, look around your network. There is probably someone you didn't think would want to do it. You assumed they didn't want to do it. Ask them anyway. Say, hey gym in IT in my office, you want to go hunting? Because most likely they haven't had an opportunity to, or maybe you're the best mentor for them. They didn't go want to go with Bob in leadership because Bob's weird, but they'll go with you. So just as an example, go and make that offer if you think somebody might want to. And then finally, on the advocacy side, and this is something me personally, you know, um, I've been looking at is how can I speak up more for you know, my experiences? How can I speak up for the, for the resources? That's why I've gotten involved as a person, not as a professional in some of my nonprofits in my state in Pennsylvania, because I'm 32. I, the baby boomer generation, the Xers can't always carry the weight of advocating why they care about this. Um, it's pretty much time for millennials to step up, at others too. So use your voice to advocate for the things you love.
0: That's awesome, Jim. Better start packing his stuff because he's he's going hunting with Sam. Apparently,
1: <laughs> <laughs> there you go, IT guy, step up. <laughs>
0: I'm get out from behind that computer. Well, Sam, uh, it's been awesome. I I I think you know you're one of the more charismatic, awesome leaders in this space. You you speak so great about it. You just you have an energy. I just always like talking to you. I I love hearing you talk about things, uh, and I just I just want more people to hear from you and people like you that, that can, can really shine the best light on, on what we all love so much. And so I appreciate you coming and and talking to us today. Um, I'll I'll leave you with the chance. Do you, do you have a parting shot for us? Anything you, a little nugget you want us to take home and, and think about after, after this is over?
1: Well, first, thank you for the kind words. That's a great honor. Um, your destiny is not sealed. Something prophetic um, you have a chance to get somebody outdoors. So if you, you know, somebody, or if they are going to be the next avid hunter, do your part, step up.
0: That's awesome. And, uh, I think we're all better for it when people get to spend more time outside. We belong <laughs> there. We came from there. That's who we are. Go connect to it with any way, any way you can. And hopefully maybe there's some food out there for you too. And, uh, you know, uh, Thanks, Sam. I appreciate you being on today. Uh, I know we'll talk more in the future. We we continue to learn from one another, and and uh, thank you for all you do for Artemis and all you do for our for our traditions. And I'll let you go with that, and we'll talk to you soon.
1: Absolutely. And if people want to learn more about what we're talking about, they can join us online. Um, Google the R three term. You'll find us, and the council is c a h uh, s s dot org too. So yeah, find and we'll us. will put that in the show notes.
0: Us. Yep, Perfect. We'll put that in the show notes and, and any other resources Sam wants to share out with, with our listeners. So Perfect.
1: Looking right, forward Sam. to it. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. We are
0: NWF Outdoors. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.